Well, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. And before you leave today, I hope you stop by the man bar in the atrium where you can pick up bacon and a lot of junk food. All right, nothing says Happy Father's Day quite like that, all right? And so we are so glad uh, that you're with us today. Now, I want to start out today a little bit differently. I want to play a game with you to get things started, and this is going to require a little bit of participation on your part, okay? Now, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to describe a really famous person in our society. It could be a politician, actor, actress, maybe a TV personality, and your job is to guess who it is that I'm talking about. All right? And so let's get started with the first one. I think you should guess it right off the bat. It goes like this. Now, this person is, ex- is an extremely wealthy individual who is known for his abrupt way of talking. He's currently married to someone who appears to at least be 30 years younger than him. You don't know if she's married to him for his money or his hair. He's currently running for president. Who am I talking about? Right, not Hillary Clinton, right? All right, the next person is a well-known college basketball coach who won three national championships for a current program here in the state of Indiana. He doesn't care what you think. He's been known to throw a chair at a referee during a game. Who am I talking about? Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, right. All right, the last one is maybe a little bit more difficult, but he is the main character on a show that no longer airs. He's the boss at a paper company located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He frequently makes awkward comments. He sees his employees as family members and desperately wants to be liked by everybody. Who am I talking about? Michael Scott. All right. Now, suppose we switch roles here a little bit, and I told you to describe, without saying his name, but to describe to me who you think Jesus was. Now, chances are we would all have something different, right? We, would all, we all have our base perceptions and what we've been taught and told to believe about who Jesus is, and so everything that we would describe about him, it would probably all look a little bit different in here today, wouldn't it? But I'd be willing to bet that one of the more common descriptions about Jesus that would come to mind for you may sound something like this. This person was a really kind individual. He was an all-around nice guy who loved peace. Had he been alive during the 1960s, he would have fit right into the hippie movement. This person loved his mom. He loved kids and was always so understanding and patient with people. He was so gentle that when he died an unjust death, he just let the soldiers walk over him. He had a long beard, long hair, and a really shiny smile, right? Now, that's the image of Christ that comes to mind for a lot of us when we hear that name, Jesus. And honestly, a lot of it is rooted in Scripture. Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. He was the one who said that if someone strikes you on one cheek, then to turn to the other. And if you, if you are going to judge somebody, then expect to be judged in return. You see, this is the version of Jesus that nobody has a problem with. Everybody in society and culture loves this Jesus. He seems so nice and comfortable and yet weak at times. You see, it was this side of Jesus that made a guy like Gandhi say, I like your Christ. There's a reason why the Bible refers to this Jesus as the Lamb of God. Lambs are cute and cuddly, right? And yet, what comes to mind when I read, when I read to you this, 
Growing up, this man, he possessed great physical strength. He was a rebellious warrior who was unpredictable at times. He was the opposite of a pacifist. One minute he seemed patient, but next minute he would be in a church shoving people around, overturning tables. He would frequently talk very harshly to pastors and even call them names. He told people one time, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I came with a sword. This warrior king was so terrifying that demonic forces couldn't run away from him fast enough, and when he was arrested, an entire army of men fell to the ground when he simply told them who he was. This person rides around on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood. His eyes are like fire as he seeks justice and vengeance upon those who do wrong. He's frequently compared to a lion that roams and reigns over the wilderness. Now, let's be honest. Jesus Christ probably isn't the person that comes to mind whenever I read that, right? I mean, that version of Jesus isn't as comfortable. It's a little bit more dangerous. He probably wouldn't get along too well in our tolerant based society with people, right? And there's no doubt he would have lawsuits after him in every direction he would turn. And so what we've done is we've created a safer image of Jesus that seems to fit our paradigm, and we've kind of done away with the side of Jesus that isn't so comfortable. But you see, my concern is this. My concern is that we have favored the lamb version of Jesus over the, lamb, over the lion version of Jesus, and what we've been left with is a false God that is nothing short of being weak. Now, if you're here today for the first time or you're your first time to church in a really long time, chances are when you hear the name Jesus, you think of someone who is just weak, and, and it's not for you, right? And, and you probably resonate more with the lamb version of Jesus. That's what you've been told. That's your perception of him. And, and if that's the case for you, then I just want you to know that I don't really blame you for staying away from him for so long. I mean, who wants to follow a weak God, Right? And so is it possible that a lot of us have stayed away from Jesus just based upon a false perception of maybe what we've been told or what we were taught to believe? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue this series that we've been in for the past couple weeks called Rewired, where we've been looking at something that Jesus talked a lot about throughout the course of his life, something called God's kingdom. Now, you hear that phrase and you think, what do you mean by God's kingdom? Well, here's the definition that we've been working off of in this series. It goes like this. The kingdom of God is the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. Now, you don't need me to tell you that something is off about this world. No, we intrinsically desire something better, something greater, something more than what this world has to offer. And so the kingdom of God, it's, it's here, it's available to us, but it's not here in its full form yet. And so I want you to know up front today that I'm going to do something that I haven't done here before yet, and that is I'm going to talk specifically to the men in this room today. Now here's why. The sovereign creator, God of the universe, has entrusted men with a part of his kingdom called the family. And so you need to know that it's going to get a little tense in here at times. That's okay. Guys, we can eat bacon afterwards, all right? But ladies, it's important that you lean in and you hear what Christ-centered masculinity is all about, not just so you can understand us a little bit more, but that you can hold us accountable to what our role is in the family, in society, and even the church. 
Now, ladies, I will say that you're going to be the direct beneficiary of a lot of what we talk about today, because let's be honest, when men get better in our life, our lives get better as well, right? I mean, that just seems to work its way out in that way. Now, understand that that God has created men and women both equally. We both share equal value and worth, but both men and women have different roles and different functions. And so it's not so much about value and worth as it is just about roles in the family. And so today I'm going to be talking about men's role within the family, whether you're a husband or a father or none of the above. If you are a man, I'm going to be talking right to you today. Now, our society, if we're honest with ourselves, is crying out for men to actually be men, right? I mean, we live in a time where we don't even know the difference between a man and a woman. And so more than ever, we need to understand what the Bible has to say and what God meant when he said at the beginning, I've created male and female. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew is towards the back fourth of your Bibles, right in between the Old Testament book of Malachi and New Testament book of Mark. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, That is our gift to you. Take it home with you and get acquainted with it. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's right on that table as you walked in uh, just a moment ago. Now, we are going to pick up in chapter 5 of this biography on the life of Jesus. Understand that Matthew was a friend of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus well. And so what he did was he recorded different accounts of the life of Christ, and he makes that available to us today. Now, as you're turning there, where we pick up today is at the beginning of the most famous message that Jesus ever preached that's been traditionally referred to in the church as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before Christ preached this message, he walked around doing a bunch of miracles, basically proving to people that he was who he claimed to be, and that was God in flesh, that that he was the creator, sovereign God of the universe, and he was walking around as mankind. And so as a way to point people to that and prove that, he did a lot of supernatural acts so that he wasn't just some crazy lunatic who said a bunch of things, but he backed it up by showing people that he possessed authority over creation. And so if you're in Matthew chapter 5, pick up with me in verse 5. Here's what Jesus says, one of the beginning statements of this message. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now last week we learned that Jesus, at the beginning of this message, used a very effective form of communication simply referred to as shock value. Now part of understanding the shock of what Jesus said here is grasping what that word blessed means. Now, this word has kind of lost its meaning over the years. It's been watered down in the church some. I mean, today we use it to describe really significant moments in our lives. So we'll post things on Facebook like, just had an amazing frappuccino, hashtag blessed, right? Job interview went well, hashtag blessed. But you see, back then, the word blessed was not just a hashtag that you casually threw around. It wasn't just a word that you kept and was only reserved for coffee mugs. No, it was much more than that. Blessed right here means more than happy, congratulated, being praised, good fortune, uplifted, congratulated. And so more than in an emotion like we use it today, Blessed was this position that was given to people by God himself. Now realize that meekness, being a meek person, generating blessing from God didn't make sense to the first century listeners who heard this for the very first time. I mean, back then, it was all about independence and self-promotion, and instead, meekness was synonymous 
for weakness. It was a position of shame in an honor and shame culture. Yet what's interesting is that there is no better word used to describe a man's role in the family, church, and society than that word meek. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's things like this Jesus says that makes you think becoming a Christian requires emasculating yourself. I mean, how do you reconcile Jesus the lion with his call to being a meek person? Well, chances are there's probably a lot of confusion around this word meekness. And so what I want to do today is just spend some time clarifying what it really means to be a meek person, and specifically for us men in here, what it means to be a meek father, husband, male in society. And so first one goes like this. Meek means being trustworthy, not irresponsible. You see, a meek person is someone you can always count on. You don't fear this person's mood swings or ir- irrational responses, impulsive reactions. They are steady. And for fathers, we know that this is especially important for us. Now, our kids may not express it out loud, but they are depending upon our consistent love and involvement in their life. Sociologists have stated that the number one predictor for a child dropping out of high school, going to prison, or committing some crime is crime is growing up in a home without a dad. The Washington Post recently stated that there are nearly 15 million children in America today who are growing up in a home without a father or a father that's not at all involved in their life. You see, whether you see it or not, there is a rising generation of frustrated children and women who are longing for men to lead them, protect them, care for them, just how God intended. Now, you might say right now, boy, that that sounds like a lot of responsibility, Patrick. That seems pretty weighty. (laughs) To that, I'd say you're exactly right. In fact, that's why a guy named Paul singled out men and fathers in a church that he planted 2,000 years ago by saying this. He writes in Ephesians, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, anger in children either surfaces quickly in their life or it's suppressed and it's manifested later on. Now, Probably the most angry people in your life are probably the same people who have a distant relationship with their dad. You see, being a father is a delicate, weighty task. The quickest way to provoke anger in a child is to lack consistency and dish out responsibility. And yet God is looking for men who will assume responsibility for not just themselves, but for their children their stepchildren, their foster children, their wives as well. And so men, the sovereign creator God has entrusted to you a small part of his kingdom called the home. The question is this, how are we doing responding to the challenge? Second clarification about this term meek goes like this. Meek means being brave, not passive. Meek means being brave, not passive. Sometimes meek is defined as strength under control. A man who possesses meekness is someone who is confident in who he is, who God has emplaced upon him while not being a doormat. Men, following Jesus means that we're walking behind a lion who rules over the entire universe. And let me tell you something. Lions do not need to be reminded of their strength and what they're capable of doing, right? Right? 
In the famous story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the Mighty Lion, represents King Jesus. In one scene, two of the main characters, Susan and Lucy, Lucy ask Mr. and Miss Beaver about this Aslan creature that they, kept, that they keep hearing about. They don't know that he's a lion. They just know that he's some mighty animal out there. And so when Susan and Lucy, Lucy first hear that Aslan is a lion, their first question is this to Mr. and Miss Beaver. Well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver responds by saying, of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king. And so don't miss what was being said there because here's the thing. Jesus is not safe. He is the king lion who reigns over all things. But I will tell you this, that Jesus, he is good. He can be trusted. You see, no man in all of human history has ever been braver and less passive than Christ. He confronted demon-possessed men with authority and courage. He restored dignity and worth to women. Jesus allowed himself to be murdered, not because he was passive, but because he was courageous. Jesus knew, in regards to you and I, that either he could live, or we would die, or he could die, and we could live. And so Jesus was literally faced with this question before the cross. What does the stronger man do? He goes first. And he faces the battle with bravery, even if that means laying down your life. You see, this is where Christ-centered masculinity really differs from what our world says being a man is all about. In our culture today, being a man is measured in terms of how much you can bench press, how many one-night stands you've had, or how many possessions you can accumulate. You see, from a worldly perspective, masculinity is measured in terms of what you can get. But Jesus? True manhood is about what you give, how much responsibility you can absorb, you see, the true mark of bravery can be seen in how much you are willing to give yourself up for the sake of others around you. Now, guys, if you don't believe me, if you're kind of pushing back on me in this moment, then I just want to play a little scenario out here for just a minute. Suppose you and your wife go home tonight and you fall asleep, but then you abruptly wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of a burglar breaking into your living room. Suppose both of you wake up and you turn to your wife and you say, well, I got up last time, tonight's your turn. I mean, how well do you think that's going to go over? Probably not all that well, right? I mean, that's backwards to us. And you see, your wife may not voice it out loud, but you see, the call to being a man is a call to wake up every single day and make it your mission to care for her, to love her, to provide for her and your children. You see, she will flourish if you embrace your God-given mandate to be a man. A man's bravery can be measured by how well he is providing, protecting his family physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But you know what? Let's be honest, men, for, for a minute. Sometimes this isn't very natural for us. This isn't our default response, right? You see, running the opposite direction of bravery has always been our biggest temptation as men. When God first created humanity, he made our first parents the managers of the earth, and he gave them one boundary to abide by. Well, Satan came along, tempted both of them, which led to Eve being the first to eat the fruit. Now, when God came to confront them, since Eve was the first to disobey, you might think that God would have asked her the first question of accountability, right? Instead, 
Genesis chapter 3 says it like this. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You see, God confronted Adam first because he allowed his wife to be deceived. If Adam would have rejected passivity in this moment, he would have wedged himself between the serpent and his wife, and he would have told Satan to back off and go to the place where he's ultimately headed at the end of time. Instead, what Adam did in this moment was he stood by like a coward, and he allowed his wife to be dragged away and taken away by deception. And to this day, it is every man's battle to choose what's easy rather than what's right. You see, exhausting ourselves over a game of golf every single Saturday is much more appealing than staying at home and helping your wife around the house and cleaning and maybe running some errands for her, right? I mean, getting away from the awkward conversation and only keeping it at its surface level is a much easier thing to do rather than sitting your daughter's boyfriend down and having a face-to-face conversation with him about what you expect and how she deserves to be treated. I mean, looking at pornography doesn't require as much emotional energy out of you than it does to actually pursue a real live woman and romance her and love her like God intends. You see, passivity says, I don't care. Passivity says, it's not on me. Passivity asks, who's to blame here? Passivity always rejects responsibility and always looks for somebody to blame. And yet this is why as men, as fathers, as husbands, The call to lead a family is a call to battle. And guys, do you know what happens for those who fight in a literal physical war, who remain passive in the midst of the fight? Not only do they lose, but after enough losses over time, eventually the country that they're fighting for loses as well. And so what happens over the course of time in our families is that the more passive we are, not only do we lose, but our family loses in the end as well. And some of us in here, that's a little bit too close to home because you've lost your family, you've been passive, you haven't cared, you've dished responsibility out. But you know what, hang in there. The good news is it doesn't have to keep being that way. There can be a new chapter for you. Let's move on. Meekness also means this. Meek means being patient, not impulsive. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was a messenger that foretold of his existence, of his life here on earth, and um, I want you to look at what what this prophet, this messenger of God says about Jesus in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Talking about Jesus, look, your king, your lion is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, that word humble can also be translated as meek, and it's used to convey this image of being patient in the midst of a battle. That that kind of patient is the result of a certainty that the war will be won. And so the battle that every father faces for his family will require patience, right? A couple weeks ago, Savannah uh, went out to run some errands, and she left me with our three kids at home, which very dangerous, probably bad decision. Bauer, our two-month-old, was in my hands. He wasn't taking a bottle, so he was screaming his head off. Our two oldest, John Ryman and Vera, were running around the house chasing each other, just screaming. They wouldn't listen to a word I was saying. It was a really frustrating moment, and they weren't listening, and it was just chaos. And I got to tell you, lots of tears were being shed. The kids cried some, too, all right? Um, 
After a few moments, silence kind of fell over our home. John Ryman and Vera went to the other room, and they were doing something. They were quiet, and I got to tell you, I was loving it. But then I realized that they were silent for a reason, and usually when your four- and three-year-old are quiet in another room and they aren't being supervised, they're not really quiet for a good thing, all right? And so I walked into that room, and Vera had taken a blue permanent marker and had colored all over our couch and cushion and pillow and a blanket that Savannah's great-grandmother sewed, like back in the Civil War or something. I mean... (laughs) It was not good, and I wanted to scream, right? And so I did. (laughs) But you know, being a meek father requires being patient and keeping perspective. And so my anger in that moment wasn't so much directed at Vera for what she had done, but it was really out of nervousness because I knew Savannah was going to come home and hold me accountable for what had taken place, right? And so meekness requires sometimes for us to hold our tongue and to not speak up and to not necessarily always make a point. Patience always means that we see the bigger picture that's at play. Now, our new vision as a church, which we're really excited about, is to connect everyone everywhere to Jesus by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. Now, practically right here in Newburgh, in this part of our country, we believe that Crossroads in the next five years will become one church with five different locations all across the tri-state region. We believe that our best days as a church are still before us. Now, I know that this is a new thing for a lot of us. We've never done something like this before as a church. A lot of you have questions. Some of you are just kind of nervous about what this looks like. That's okay. We get it. But realize that our patience is always tested when change occurs. I'm just being straight with you. As your lead pastor, we are going to make mistakes along the way. And so we need you to be flexible. I mean, trust that this is the direction that God has given us as your leaders, as elders and as staff, that we believe this is where God is taking our church in the future. And so when we talk about reproducing campuses, just so you know, this is going to force us to do fewer ministries and programs so that we can reproduce locations more rapidly and effectively. We will be calling each of you who call Crossroads home to do more ministry with less ministry so that you can go deeper with people in your life and and at the end of the day so that you can be more home you can be at home more often investing into your children and into your neighborhood and I'll be honest with you our future together will consist of changes that you may like and then there will be some decisions that you don't really like and so keep focusing on the greater vision keep focusing on the vision more than any one ministry preference or worship style all right You see, when you look at the history of humanity, the history of church, no vision from God ever became reality without the collective sacrifice of many. And so we believe as a church that our best days are still before us, that they are not behind us, that that God has greater work ahead for us, but this is going to require that we all be on the same page. This is going to require that we all buy in, all right? Now, next thing is this, that about meekness, meek means being focused not distracted. Perhaps uh, more than any society ever, being a dad in 2016 requires being narrowly focused. 
Our mission is to advance God's kingdom by raising the next generation. One of the reasons why this is so difficult is because the 21st century offers so many enticing distractions. You see, the subtle lie all around us is that kids are an inconvenience, that they're a nuisance, they're messy, they're a hassle. Psalm 127 says just the opposite. Children are a gift from the Lord. What? They are a reward from him. Huh? Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. You see, the writer here says that kids are precious possessions, and fathers are to be the warriors. See, raising children is a battle, and if fatherhood is like being on the front line of a war, then the psalmist here says that children are to be the arrows that need to be directed and aimed at the right target. And so let me ask you, dads, where are you aiming your children? I mean, what's the purpose of parenthood, in your opinion, from your perspective? Now, for some of us, our primary aim in our children's lives might look like this. It's education. We're constantly pushing our kids to get good grades. Oftentimes, our motives with this are really good. Your son or daughter is intelligent and could go really far in life, and they could get a really good scholarship later on. Now, education is a really good and necessary thing. It's vital. Our kids need to excel to further society as well as the church in the future. But let me ask you, dads, would your child say that learning that learning is all you care about and it's your top priority for them? Would your son, daughter, or stepchild say that, that their grades are what generate the most response for you when they excel or maybe when they don't excel? For others of us, our primary target in parenting looks like this. It's, it's sports. I mean, we want our kids to excel in football, basketball, baseball, soccer, tennis, golf, cheerleading, volleyball. I mean, you know that they have a natural talent and ability, so you see it as their job to be their coach, to push them harder. And so when the season is in full swing, you rearrange your entire weekend so that you can travel with them. Again, sports are not the issue. Sports can be a really good thing that help develop a child's social skills, and many life lessons can be learned when being a part of a team. But dads, would your children say that your affection for them is contingent upon their performance on the field? I mean, if they have a bad game, do you treat them differently? Another target that we have a tendency to focus on when raising our kids is this, good behavior. I mean, do you consider it a success if you go a week without hearing from the principal's office or the police department? <laughs> I mean, if that were the case, my parents weren't too successful then, all right? I'll never forget, last year for Father's Day weekend, I preached at my home church back in Louisville where my father-in-law is a senior pastor, and in between services on Sunday morning, my middle school principal approached Savannah's dad and said, boy, God can really do anything, <laughs> and Patrick's life is proof of that, <laughs> and he's right, you know? And so we want our kids to behave properly, right? We want them to be respectful, and there's nothing wrong with that. We want them to have good manners. But a question that my wife and I have to constantly struggle through and wrestle with, especially with my role here at Crossroads, it goes like this. Do we just want our kids to behave so that it makes us look good? I mean, is it possible to raise children who are perfectly obedient and respectful, yet totally miss Jesus? 
Well, the last target that may describe our aim in parenting goes like this. It's the gospel. Now, I'm a pastor. You expect for this to be up here, right? And so you're thinking, what, what is the gospel? That seems like a foreign term to me. Well, it literally means good news. And, and when we talk about the gospel, it describes how you and I are totally ho- helpless and, and, and uh, lost in our sin, which separates us from our creator God. It's impossible to earn our way back in. And so 2,000 years ago, God knew that and in his foreknowledge sent his son Jesus to pay our debt. And through his sacrifice on the cross actually enables us to enter back into a relationship with him. We have been adopted back into the family of God, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And so now we have the opportunity to be a citizen in the kingdom that we were created for from the beginning. And so when I talk about the gospel being the target for your kids, I'm not just asking if they've given their life to Jesus. It's more than that. You see, when the gospel is what we're aiming towards, the implications are that we explain and we model for them every single day in our home how we need to cling to Jesus every second of the day. You see, this is about using everyday opportunities to point our kids to Jesus. And so this happens not through merely what we say, but also how we live, but also what we do. Now, i got to be straight with you for a minute. My kids will probably not remember a lot of things that I've sat down and talked with them about and I've explained to them, but i got to tell you, one thing that will leave an impression upon them are the moments that I go to them and I say, hey, look, Daddy needs to ask for forgiveness for something that I did and something that I said. You see, when the gospel remains the target and eliminates this pressure to be the perfect dad, to be the perfect mom, while redeeming our imperfections to illustrate what Jesus provides. You see, when, gospel, when the gospel remains central, it constantly trains and teaches me about all my sinfulness, yet how God has accepted me in Christ in spite of all my mess, in spite of all my junk and brokenness. And so dads who are followers of Jesus in here right now, I'm not talking to you if you're a dad and you're not a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, I am telling you that it is not the church or the Christian daycare to raise your child to know Christ. It is your job. It is your wife's job as well. But you know what? You make it really hard for her when she feels like she is always pulling you all the time. Now, when you come here on the weekends, your children are not babysat when you drop them off at childcare. They're being cared for. They're being prayed over by dedicated men and women who selflessly give up their time on the weekends to raise your child and to come alongside you in raising your child. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's God who holds us accountable. I love how so many of you have chosen to adopt children and have chosen to be foster parents. Way to go. I mean, talk about running towards responsibility. And I've observed how this always, this isn't always an easy thing, though. Some of our really good friends, a part of this church, adopted a precious little girl several years ago, and she is so sweet. But she's a handful of times, to tell you the truth. And, and it hasn't been an easy journey for them. The other day, I asked Chad, what are you constantly learning in your role as a dad? And this is what Chad told me. He said, well, much like how God has granted us grace through Jesus and offers us room for failure without the fear of rejection, Chad said, we are learning to apply that same grace to our children even when they don't meet our standards every day. 
When Chad said that, I thought to myself, what if the best way to experience the gospel is to not always expect for grace to be given to us, but if the best way to experience the gospel is actually to be given grace to those around us. Now, we're almost done. I know that today's been a little bit heavier for some of us, and you've disagreed with some of what I've said. Heck, I haven't even liked everything that I've said today, all right? But there's a lot of us in here right now who are probably experiencing some guilt and feel a little bit of condemnation because, let's be honest, you've maybe made some serious mistakes in the past, and, and to that I'd just say join the club. I mean, there's no area of my life that I feel like I feel more at than in my role as a dad to raise the next generation. But if you would describe the way that you feel right now as kind of having a heavy heart, a lump in your throat, I'm not just going to pat you on the back and say, hey, look, everything's going to be okay. It doesn't matter what you did. No, you know what? Being entrusted with a part of God's kingdom is a really big deal. But it doesn't have to continue being that way. And so here's what I want to leave you with on this Father's Day. You can't change the dad that you were. You can't change the past. But you can change the dad that you are, right? And I know some of you are thinking, but Patrick, you don't understand what I've done. You don't know how I've neglected my family, the choices that I've made that have caused some relationships in my life to be severed. And you're right, I don't, but you know what? God does. And Jesus knew that 2,000 years ago. That's actually why he went to the cross in the first place. Now, I know how us men are wired and how we think. Your biggest battle, guys, moving forward is not going to be not going to be asking or receiving forgiveness from God himself. Your biggest battle won't be even going to those in your life asking for forgiveness for what you've done. You know what your biggest battle is going to be moving forward? Forgiving yourself. Letting yourself up off the mat. And so the dad that you were doesn't have to be the dad that you are moving forward because you know what? If you are still a father, no matter how distant your children may be from you, no matter how long it's been since you've talked with them, you can still be a dad. You can still be an influence in their life. And yes, you carry shame and insecurities with you, but you know what? That's stuff you don't have to carry. Jesus never meant for you to carry that to begin with because he carried it for you in your place. And so beyond the cross, that's stuff that God never intended for you to carry. And so what would it look like for you this week as a next step to becoming the dad that you can be? And what are the implications for you? What what would this look like to distance yourself from the dad that you were to the dad that you are? Let's all stand up here, all right? We're going to sing one more song. We're going to get out of here and eat loads of bacon, all right? But next week, we're going to continue this Rewired series as we pick up in Matthew 5, verse 6. And so if you're into memorization, you might want to go ahead and read ahead. I know some of you have liked doing that. Matthew 5, verse 6, we'll pick up there. Uh, But uh, I hope we haven't scared you off, and I hope you do come back, all right? Uh, Let's pray. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll get out of here. Jesus, I know I speak on behalf of a lot of us in here that we're carrying around a lot of guilt and shame and insecurities that have been the result of some choices that we've made in the past. Jesus, that's not something you don't see. That's not something you don't know about. And yet that's something that you actually carried. And because you carried it, you never meant for us to carry it. 
And so, Lord, if we're experiencing shame and guilt right now, would you just show us how, how we don't have to keep being that person that we were, but we can actually become a new person, not, not so much because of what we do, but because of what you've done that inspires us to change, the Spirit of God living, residing within each of us. And so, God, as fathers, as men in this room, help us to embrace our God-given role to be the leaders, the protectors, the providers in our homes. God, our culture is just crying out for men to be men. Our church is crying out for men to be men. And so would you help us do this? Would you help us fight the battle, God, that honestly at the end of the day is worth fighting, but a lot of us have given up. And so we need you, Jesus, more than ever. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.